right, we're rolling. How are we? No, we're rolling. According to this, I'm rolling. I oh, see. Uh, will you uh, edit out any uh, egregious mistakes that I make? I will. I'm... All right. That's the great thing about not doing this live. If you think you said something stupid and you want it left out, feel free to let me know. What if I start dropping F-bombs because I drank this pumpkin hey, ale uh, very quickly? Hey, obscenities are allowed here. Oh, okay. Oh, boy. Well, just, you, just, you just opened Pandora's box. Okay, there we go. Nothing racial. Of course, yeah. And nothing religious. Those are really the, gen- the, the only two rules I have for this podcast. All right, all right. <laughs> well, I am. This is still or a... no politics. I keep politics out as much as I can. Okay. But like I said, so just shoot me a message. I'm I'm going to leave all of this in. All right, great, awesome. Let's let's keep it. This is the raw, unedited. This is the uh... raw. This is us preparing for the podcast, <laughs> and I just decided to leave in. So, welcome to another episode of Stories from Rabar. I am Chris Osborne, the host, of course, and for this episode, I'm hanging out with Mike Diana. I hope I said that right. Oh, yeah, you got okay, it. Okay, good. It's, I always forget to ask pronunciation of the last name before I start. I'm going to write myself a note or something. <laughs> <laughs> Education and Programs Manager over at the Schenectady County Historical Society. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? Great, man. Great. It's Wednesday evening it's about happy hour time we're having some beers i'm very excited about i'm this. almost done with mine we might have to we can uh, we'll, we'll pause and grab some more beers all right we have the technology Great. we do we do we do so before i get into anything i do have a little business to tend to gotta throw a little ad out there if you don't mind uh so for all the listeners out there feel free to use the discount code stories for three percent off your purchase from uptown beverage in schenectady over on altamont ave huge beverage center great selection from all the local breweries that you know and love anything else you may be looking for they likely have it and if for some reason they don't they will be happy to get it for you so be sure to check out uptownbeverage.com and use the discount code stories for three percent off your any online purchase plus they offer delivery which is always fantastic <laughs> it's nothing like getting beer delivered to Wait, your door. Wait, can I use that discount? Yeah, anybody well? that listens to the podcast. Oh, goodness. Wow. I know. But now on to all kinds of other stuff and the reasons we're here. And I'm very excited about this. This is the second time since I've done the podcast in three years that I'm doing a Ghost Stories episode. I feel like I have such a small window to do them and then I get lazy. <laughs> that once October passes, I'm like, well, there's always next year. Absolutely. <laughs> there's always next year. But... Like a, a few years ago, I did one with Maeve McEnany Johnson from Discover Albany on Ghost Stories in Albany. That was fascinating. And I've wanted to do one uh, on Schenectady since. Well, we've got cooler ghosts. I think it's just objectively provable that we have cooler ghosts. All right. So. All right. We'll get into that. Yeah, you know. uh, that sounds like uh, the gauntlet's <laughs> been thrown down there. Well, it's just a friendly rivalry. You know, <laughs> Albany's been living in our shadow for 300 years now. They, they haven't forgiven us, so. I guess, so they're trying to claim the ghost crown, is what you're saying? It's it's a contentious title, It's you know, but uh, sometimes you, you can't mess with the best. <laughs> so we're hanging out at Mad Jack Bruin at the Van Dyke here in the Stockade in Schenectady. I want to give a big shout out and thank you to them, <clears throat> their manager, Deborah, for letting us record here in their gold room. It was very kind to them. Uh, the Van Dyke has always been one of my favorite places to stop in Schenectady. As we were having our little conversation, I'm like the one of my my favorite thing about this place is the building's been here forever. Mm. Uh, the building itself, maybe since the 1800s, I think the Van Dyke, the first iteration of it, opened in like the 47 or something, 1947, as the Jazz Lounge. Yeah, yeah, I don't actually know the, the history of it myself, but I do know that it goes back that this particular building has perhaps some ghost stories associated with it as well. Oh, and we will get into. We, we will. <laughs> we were just talking to uh, the manager Deborah yes. about that. So. But uh, just. The Victorianness of this building is one of the, my favorite things to come see because it's not something you see when you expect to go to a brewery or mm. restaurant or bar. So that's why this is one of my, on top of the top-notch beers and food, of course. My favorite thing, if my, I may interject, Absolutely. Is, is the people here. You know, we at the Historical Society work with the Van Dyke. We work with uh, uh, Brian, the brewer here, uh, for a lot of the different programs that we do. And you can tell this is a, a great space operated by great people. And uh, when you come here, you meet them, you, you get to know them a little bit better, and you just see that this is... Uh, what you want to see uh, in your your own town, you know? Yeah, so. absolutely. And I am drinking the Mohawk Sunset IPA, which is quite delicious. This is the first time I've had this one. I had their Oktoberfest before this, and that was good. I am finishing uh, their Pumpkin Spice Ale. I, I'm, that's They have a longer title for it, but this is the last gulp of that. <laughs> and as I've mentioned before, I'm not into the whole pumpkin beer, pumpkin spice stuff. It's the yeah. Oktoberfest that tickle my fancy come October or mm. September. I won't drink them before September because I feel like that's just not – shouldn't be allowed. 
Well, I, I'm perfectly willing to admit that I have no taste for beers whatsoever. <laughs> Typically, I'm, I'm usually a, a cocktail or a, a wine kind of person, but that's just that goes back to my experiences in college. And that's that's a podcast for another time, folks. We don't want to go there. And you want to take another a little pause for to grab another beer before we get into it? <laughs> sure, sure. All right. All right, I think we're back. <laughs> yeah, through the magic of technology. The, the like, note I leave to myself to make sure the red light is on. Uh, the red light is on. Oh, great! Fantastic. Timer's going again, so we're good. Uh, what uh, what beer did you end up grabbing? Now I have the Oktoberfest. That was the. Uh, the bartender's recommendation. Yes, so. I enjoyed that one. That was my first I'm beer. That was good. Enjoying it, yeah. Uh, so before we get into ghost stories, because I'm very excited to talk about those, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself in the Schenectady Historical Society for everyone that will listen to this? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in the area. Technically, I was a, a Gilderland kid, so that's the next town over. Yeah. Uh, but, in fact, but my yeah. my uncle's the soccer coach there. Oh no, kidding. Yeah. Well, who's your uncle? Coach Canali. Oh, great. Well, I, I know Coach Canale very well. Uh, probably, do you? Well, maybe he remembers me. I don't know. All right. I kind of, you know, fell off around uh, 10th grade, so so maybe he's forgotten all about me. I, <laughs> I wasn't one of the varsity stars, but, uh, you know, if you're, if you're hearing this, Coach Canale, thanks for the good time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I grew up in Gilderland, and I've always loved history. Uh, growing up, uh, surprisingly, despite I had incredible history teachers in Gilden High School, uh, but it just never clicked for me that history was something that was local as well. It was always something that happened somewhere far away, European history, Roman history, or you know, kind of uh, even more exotic places than that. But uh, it wasn't until I uh, was in college, uh, Hamilton College is where I studied, I came back to the area. Uh, and I became acquainted with the Schenectady County Historical Society uh, just kind of in my summers, right? My time off from school, I would come and I would volunteer. And man, my, my eyes were opened that this area where we live, the Albany, Schenectady, Troy area, uh, capital region, whatever you want to call it, uh, has really been at the crossroads of so many important events in United States history. And I think Schenectady in particular, and am I contractually obligated to say this? Yes. But is it also <laughs> true? Yes. Uh, the Schenectady County Historical Society is an incredible organization for local history. It's a group primarily driven by volunteers, people from the community who really care about the mission of protecting and preserving and sharing Schenectady's history, uh, and just so many countless hours uh, go into it from, again, volunteers, from just regular people in the community. Of course, we also have a, a professional staff, and now I'm one of those supposedly professional staff members. Congratulations. Uh, oh, wait, well, thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> and I have uh, five much more professional colleagues than myself. So we have a, a lovely little organization um, that I think we're able to kind of mix the, the capabilities of a larger organization with the, uh, the heart and the soul of a, a smaller local organization. So we have three historic sites, uh, our museum and headquarters at 32 Washington. We're just down the street from there, just here in the Stockade Historic District. Walking distance. Oh, absolutely. Walking distance. Absolutely. Uh, we have the Maybe Farm Historic Site just outside of town, still technically within walking distance, but it's going to take you. It's going to take you a, a little bit day. of a hike. A little <laughs> bit of a hike. Yeah. Uh, so that is a 1705 farmhouse and maybe one of our, our more popular sites. People, We just had a fall foliage festival there and we had uh, geez, probably 1500 people come on through in that day. So that was oh, a wow. pretty big event for us. I, nice. I was stuck doing parking. I, I didn't have that much fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we also have recently acquired the Brower House Creative Space, which is another historic home in the Stockade, which we've opened up for uh, for artist spaces, for studios. And we have some very creative people doing some very creative things oh, that's awesome. in that house. Oh, yeah, we're, we're having a lot of fun. It's, that's, that's what my job really is. It's just me having a lot of fun, and then somehow I get paid to do it. So mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know how that works, but... Let's live in the dream right It there. keeps working, so <laughs> I'm not going to complain. It's funny you mentioned... Never thinking about your own hometown's history when, of course, you're going through school and being taught the history of literally anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's the most important thing that people need to learn. That history is something that you can interact with, that it is, uh, you know, that it shapes your world and where you are and your neighbors around you. Uh, you're all a product of, a, you know, of, of history. And if you think about it in these abstract and academic terms, I'll, I'll be honest, it's boring, it's stupid, and it's irrelevant. Who cares about that kind of textbook history? Uh, history is a living, breathing narrative that we all take part in. 
Mm-hmm. And so if you're not, you know, involved in it, if you're not educating yourself about the past, you'll just have other people tell you what to think and you'll believe it and uh, you, you won't have a leg to stand on. That's true. Honestly, not until I got older did I really start looking into Schenectady history and stuff like that. And we'll, we'll, oh, yeah. we're going to get into some of that for some of these ghost stories because of the massacre and everything. Oh, we sure are. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the word massacre catches people's attentions when they hear that. Oh, yeah. But uh, I think I say we start talking about some ghosts, man. Oh, absolutely. We can absolutely do the ghost stuff. You know, I, let's start off. Uh, we'll go down the road just a little bit. I've come across like two stories from down the road uh, and then a couple stockade specific because this mm-hmm. is the stockade was, of course, the site of 16. Was it 1690? A large yeah. massacre. Yeah, that was the uh, the massacre of 1690. It's uh Kind of like uh, you know the free bird for our organization, you know Leonard Skinner's free bird. Would be. I'm always I'm always telling this story, and it's it's a very interesting story. It's an engaging, dramatic story, uh, which is kind of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, uh, you know people will pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, kind of like a, a game of telephone. If you play that when you're a kid, you know you start oh, yeah. saying one thing, and then by the time it goes around the circle from you know mouth to ear, mouth to ear, all the way back around, it's some Somehow changed and morphed into something completely different. So it's a it's a story that gets told and retold, uh, but not necessarily the most grounded and historical approaches are taken. I don't think that's a surprise. We'll, but we'll get into that a little oh, bit. Sorry. Why don't we start with uh, you mentioned in one of your emails the most famous. Oh yeah, uh, the story of Alice Vanderveer. Veer. Vanderveer. Vanderveer. Oh, yeah. Alice Vanderveer. Well, I can I can tell you the story and then yeah, I can that, deconstruct it. Because I, be I as I was doing my research, of course, everything I come across says there's of course various iterations, but they all yes. have the general consensus of the overarching theme there. But yeah, tell me. Yeah, no matter what version, it never really uh, has a happy ending, does no. it? No. Wow. Well, I'll I'll get into. I guess this is my version, uh, synthesized and distilled from all the various versions that I've been exposed to. So, uh, this this is the the story of <laughs> speaking Alice, of the telephone game. <laughs> yeah, the story of Alice Vanderveer, uh, as I understand it. So uh, we're gonna go back to even before the massacre. We're not quite massacred yet. No. Uh, so around 1672. 1672 is, is the date that is associated with this story. Okay. For some reason, I, I don't know why. Uh, but 1672, Schenectady was a small little outpost on the fringes of the British Empire. Um, the majority of the population was Dutch, hence the name Vanderveer and all the other Dutch names that you might encounter throughout this podcast. But it was, it's a very small place. Everyone kind of seems to know everyone, and they're on this far-flung reaches of this colonial world. Surrounding the town would be pine forests as far as the eye can see. Schenectady was, of course, the place beyond the pines. It's it's in the name. And it's also in the movie. The movie that it's came in the out. movie too, yeah. So you can't forget that. Now I like, I like to tell people Ryan Gosling robbed my bank. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that that's true. I I that's a very creative way to, to put it. I gotta, yeah. I gotta remember that. There you go. So Alice, who is Alice? Well according to the legend, Alice is a, a young fetching woman. Uh, you know, kind of of suitable marriage age at the, at the time. Her father, however, was kind of a, a miserly, jealous old man, a, a real uh, controlling and vindictive person. Uh, and despite Alice's popularity with all the young lads here in Schenectady, that uh, he would not suffer to have his daughter courting any of them, because according to him, no man in Schenectady was good enough for his daughter. You know, it's funny. I feel like right off the bat, that makes the story relatable because of all like the dad jokes <laughs> that oh, you yeah, always yeah. hear about never letting their daughters date until, you know, they're like 30 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, this is like... So the... I think that helps catch... I think that probably helped catch the story catch on. Oh, absolutely. No matter how live. bad your prom experience was, it's not as bad as Alice Vanderveer's prom <laughs> experience. Uh, she had it a little bit rougher. Uh, because back then, law and order was more of a, a concept than a, a series of institutions. So uh, all the all the eligible young bachelors stayed away from Alice Vanderveer, despite her beauty, her reported beauty, her reported uh, good nature and charms. You know, it wasn't just physical. She was apparently a very nice lady as well. I don't know. I never met her. <laughs> Nevertheless, Alice... Uh, you know, she she put up with her dad's controlling nature. They, the Vanderveer family supposedly lived in a little cabin just outside of the town, just on the outskirts of town, somewhere out in the woods there. And and somehow, some way, she catches the eye of, of one young gentleman in particular who's not dissuaded 
by Alice's father's threats and his uh, his swagger. Uh, and this gentleman uh, starts to, to court with Alice in secret, and she finally starts to break away from her controlling father, sneaking out in the middle of the night while he's uh, fast asleep to meet with this young suitor and go for midnight strolls or... You know, I don't really know what they did back in the 17th century to, you know, to, to date. I don't 1672 really was probably a different <laughs> yeah, level of scandalous than it was these days. I don't know what the level, like, these days. first base, second base, I don't know what that means in 1672. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, it was getting pretty, uh, pretty serious between the two. Alice was probably starting to think that she would have to tell her father what was going on. But and as fate would have it, she didn't have to because at some point... Her dad catches on to the to the secret liaison, uh, and he starts to follow Alice. One fateful night, he follows her as she sneaks out of the home. He follows her at a distance with his trusty musket in hand uh, because he knows that something is going on. And when he sees his daughter and this young suitor, this impudent young man, canoodling, there uh, <laughs> along the riverside. Uh, like he that is, word. Yeah, it's it's the it's most PG word. word I can think. Yeah. I, again, I don't know what they were up to back then. I don't even know what canoodling actually means, but I think it's <laughs> I think it applies here. Um, by the riverside, uh, he is furious, and so he levels that musket, uh, and without a warning, without a any chance of this young man getting away, uh, Mr. Vanderveer pulls the trigger. A shot rings out in the night, breaking the silence of this small little town, and the young suitor falls dead right there. Now, uh, Alice, of course, is horrified to see her her lover slain before her very eyes, uh, and she is immediately hysterical, screaming, crying, oh my goodness, what has happened? So her dad approaches her and starts yelling at her for all the, how duplicitous she's been and oh, how could you do this to me? Because apparently this was a some injury against him or something like that. Of course. It's a, it's a pretty dramatic, ugly scene, you know, again, uh, it's, it's um, pretty gross. But the town is waking up because they heard the gunshot, they hear the yelling, and they are all kind of gathering together to figure out what is going on. Because again, back then, there, there are no police. The justice was dispensed the old-fashioned way. A, a mm-hmm. mob would form, uh, you know, decisions would be made, and, and people would pay the price. Oh, right? the good old mob and, days. And, yeah, they, right, yeah, well, I can go back to the mob days. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what we're missing here in modern-day America. Yeah. Nevertheless, they grab their pitchforks and torches, or whatever cartoonish scenario you might want to imagine, and they all descend upon the river where Alice and her father are still, you know, arguing. She's uh, trying to pull her away back home so that they can flee the scene, but she's not going anywhere, uh, staking by the side of her fallen young love. And so the townspeople quickly surround the two. They see the situation. They see uh, old uh, Mr. Vanderveer there with his musket. They see the dead man, and they they put two and two together. They figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. And again, as we said, mob justice. If one thing you can say about it is uh, it's efficient. Uh, they quickly apprehend. They generally Mr. accomplish their goal. Yes, very very quickly. They especially uh, back then. Back then, yes. No uh, no red tape. No bureaucracy. No appeals. <laughs> uh, they grab Mr. Vanderveer. They drag him to the center of town where apparently they they erect a stake, tie him to it, and burn him right there at the stake. So Jan Vanderveer goes up in flames that night to pay for his crimes. Now, Alice, of course, she probably wasn't too happy with her dad at that point in time, but she's still horrified further by seeing now her father being burned alive before her very eyes. Uh, And this is all just too much for the young young lady. Uh, She wants to get away, and and who can blame her? She She wants to run, and so she does. She runs away from the scene. She flees this horrible scenario in front of her, and she heads out towards the east part of town. Now, when the mob sees her trying to get away, they come to some pretty rash conclusions that, well, perhaps she had more to do with this than, you know, they previously thought. Perhaps she was not just a a hapless victim here, but in fact an evil seductress, a a temptress, if you will, uh, that had led that young man to his untimely demise. I mean, that makes sense to me, right? Yeah, obviously. I mean, isn't that all women? I mean, did you see the way she was dressing? (laughs) I mean, that dress. Back in 1672? You could practically see her ankles in that dress. I was going to say it. Ankle-related joke. <laughs> uh, well, I shouldn't laugh because the mob starts pursuing Alice as she blindly flees. She heads out of the stockade wall, this little palisade that once surrounded the small town, uh, flees out the eastern gate into again the forests beyond. 
Uh, and we're talking about even if you were to get to where Erie Boulevard is today, you would find thick, heavy woodland, and she's fleeing through this dark and wooded environment uh, with no destination in mind. She just wants to get away. And now the mob, again, uh, torches and pitchforks in hand, are pursuing her as she flees. And supposedly she gets past the plain, past the great flats, and up into the hills above the flats there, up into the hills uh, where, unfortunately for her, she trips down a little embankment and into a small little stream, uh, the Cowhorn Creek, which still flows today. Uh, and she, she trips into the stream, and, well, at that point in time, uh, horrified, terrified, and now injured, she just, she just kind of gives up gives up on just about everything and it's in no time at all that the mob catches up to her uh they apprehend her and tie her to a tree and give her the same treatment as the their as her father Jeez, uh man. they burn her alive right there at uh at well not at the stake but at the tree and apparently alice was so defeated and so just broken by the events of that night that even as they tied her to the tree and set uh, the kindling alight that she offered no cry or no protest. And even as the flames started to consume her, she just sat there or hung there really uh, silent as she burned alive. It's crazy how many stories end with people being burned at the stake. Yeah, there, there must be some kind of anthropological uh, conclusion to be drawn there. It must uh, There must be something going on. Yeah. I'm not sure. But supposedly the... A little copse of trees, the stream where Alice met her end is uh, today, if you know where Jackson Gardens is, yep. Union College campus. Right, so right down the road from here, again, walking distance. Oh, absolutely. Apparently it's the, the very same stream uh, that you can kind of uh, walk alongside today if you are a Union College uh, uh, student or even if you're just a member of the community. You can go out there and you can see it for yourself. I've been drunk wandering around that campus at night. Oh, really? Yeah. I never have. I, I, didn't, I didn't go there. I've never been that much fun. I hear they have they have good parties at Union I vaguely College. remember falling in a bush. Oh, all right. Well, there you go. That's that's half of uh, yeah, that's, Alice's story right there. I know, that's, there you go. It's a good that's thing there was no mobs back then. Half or, the college experience. I, I think so. <laughs> so, supposedly, again, if you ask certain uh, Union College alum, or maybe even some students today, I don't know, I'm not... Not cool enough to party with college kids anymore, but apparently uh, there are some strange phenomena that kids experience, uh, you know, certain uh, so, moonlit nights. I definitely found stories or like one guy's like some historian related to the college, like she never existed. Can't find proof. And then, of course, you have the stories from, you know, the people that experience stuff. Yeah. Uh, one woman, I forgot her name and I didn't write it down in my notes, but how did I? <laughs> She said she researched it for a long time, trying to find some kind of sign. She had someone come to her once that talked about being basically picked up and thrown across. Oh, dear. The courtyard there, or Jackson, the garden. Huh. Or something like well, that. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's But from what I could find, according to the legend, it's basically on the first full moon of summer, her ghost reappears at the garden. Looking Supposedly. For yeah. Is that Again, trying forever to, you know reunite with her lover or something like that something tragic like that and she's never going to quite uh, accomplish her goal except if her goal is to spook some college kids can i be honest chris i yes i've looked into uh, the story of course because i've i've had to tell it i've had people ask me about it you know i've never even uh seen too much evidence of an alice vanderveer in the first place um, am, I, am I ruining the immersion no no uh, i don't i think that's a valid argument i mean how <laughs> seriously how good were records from 1672 right they're pretty limited basically what you're looking at is whatever was recorded in the uh the local church um and at that point in time 1672 if that's when alice was alive the nearest church uh would have been in albany the dutch reformed church of albany would have been keeping track of births baptisms marriages and deaths uh, and that is your demographic knowledge for this time period but there was what makes it weird is there. This story took off, from what I could tell. Like you mentioned in your email when we were convert conversing back and forth, there it was basically the most famous ghost story in the general area. Yes, like this is Life the, magazine had the two page spread in it in like the nineteen fifties or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it had a, a bit of popularity in the mid twentieth century, uh, and I think a lot of that may have even been related to um, 
I guess there was a movie. This is oh, before yeah. my time, folks. There was so, a movie that was shot on location. 1991, at I believe. Uh, well, I know of The Way We Were, yep. 1973. Robert Redford and, Ro- and Barbara Streisand. Streisand. It and was I, a Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, well, I, yeah, I don't even know who Michelle Pfeiffer is. I don't know my celebrities. I barely know who Barbara Streisand is. But apparently that was shot there, and that kind of correlates to this uh, boom in popularity for this story because it was somehow a recognizable location from the, that from that movie. And just kind of goes to show that sometimes the meta history uh, plays as much to our understanding of the past as the, the actual documentable facts of the case. Like I said, we were talking about ghosts and stuff before this. Uh, I'm not 100% either way on whether or not I believe in ghosts. Mm. Uh, I enjoy the stories. I kind of want to believe, but at the same time, I'm also incredibly skeptical. Yeah. Stories are always so entertaining to me, especially one like this it's the experiences i like hearing about more than anything like the stories are super interesting oh yeah uh, last time i was i went down to charleston i did a ghost walking tour and they had some real fun stuff that they pointed out like mm. we walked by this one tiny cemetery they talked about uh someone took a polaroid or something uh-huh. and supposedly captured a ghost uh the story was this uh woman had lost her child really early on she goes to the cemetery to mourn it every year on its birthday or Something like that. I don't remember. This was years ago now. Uh-huh. I guess at the time, Polaroid had a department that actually analyzes these pictures. Oh. And they're like, we can't disprove this. We can't, of course, we can't tell you it's a ghost, but we also can't say that it was a malfunction of your camera or anything like that. Interesting. Huh. Well, that's, uh, that's quite a story. And we get that sometimes on our ghost uh, tours. Uh, we have people taking photos, uh, and they'll, they'll come up with some strange artifacts in their, their photos, and they'll, they'll send them to us, and we kind of shrug our shoulders, and I guess it really does come down to your interpretation. I'll, I'll share, I will confess that while <laughs> personally I'm a bit of a skeptical person, uh, I enjoy the stories as well. Uh, you see, I have a bit of a different kind of burden uh, as a historian here with the Historical Society that I have to kind of... Thank you. Ooh, wow, look at this. Goodness. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. All right. Well, we're, we are getting some fantastic food right Absolutely. Now. Yeah. Thank you, Deborah, so much. And, oh, man, I'm, that's just exactly what I was having in mind. <laughs> so. uh, but I do have this kind of methodological burden because uh, every other month of the year, people rely on me to provide, hopefully, to the best of my ability, factual and uh, reasonable interpretations of Schenectady's past. So when I tell these stories... I kind of have to toe the line between uh, indulging in the story itself and also offering some kind of historical, provable context. Well, I mean, you want to assume that most of these stories are based off real events. Like, we talked about the massacre. We'll get into that a little more. Oh, yeah. Uh, But let's move on. We talked about that being, like, the most famous story to come out of the general area. There's also, I came across Vale Cemetery, which is also down the road. Mm-hmm. Some stories about there, and I just want to touch on this because it came up a couple times. Open since 1857. Large, I don't know if it's still the largest cemetery in Schenectady. It may be. I'm not sure. It's pretty big. I yeah, can tell you it's, that it's pretty huge. But from what I was reading, like there's been people have heard statues crying or even seen them bleeding, you know, like out of the eyes. That seems like a kind of typical thing story when it comes to like graveyard stories. I feel yeah. Like. And, and one thing that I have heard, um, maybe not recently, but when Vale Cemetery was first opened, this is a part of a kind of a countrywide rural cemetery movement. And again, you wouldn't think of Vale Cemetery being particularly rural because it's in the heart of downtown. But suffice to say, when it was built, it was very rural. The original Dutch churchyard, where the first burials in Schenectady uh, had taken place, it was uh, kind of sandwiched between uh, Front Street and Green Street over by the, uh, the little circle with the Lawrence statue, a pretty popular landmark. Well, that cemetery there was exhumed, and all the bodies were relocated oh, to wow. Vale Cemetery. And apparently, uh, when those bodies were disturbed and reinterned, uh, some of the, the bodies, the spirits, if you will, were not terribly happy with having been moved from where they wanted to Imagine be. Imagine that. Yeah, right? You're taking these people off. It's not eternal rest when you wake them up to move them. Absolutely, right? <laughs> Wouldn't you be mad? Some, I mean, today you got to pay an arm and a leg to get a, a, a good burial spot right yeah. that's that's money you got to pay and so apparently the, the the few homes surrounding the cemetery reported some very strange occurrences uh in the aftermath of that relocation uh, of course i i wasn't there so i can neither confirm nor deny of but course that's the kind but, of story that comes up yeah but um uh, the most interesting thing i found on vale cemetery there's apparently an abandoned 
small church or something on the property when people talked about hearing like ghostly choirs saying it come from the church. Now that creeps the shit out of me. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to go there tonight and find out. <laughs> One thing I can say about Vale Cemetery is um, there's it certainly evokes that mood. You know, there's the cemetery part. You know, kind of on top of the the hill there, and it's it's pretty easy to navigate around. There's some beautiful monuments up there. But then as you go down the hill into a little hollow, there's a stream that flows at the bottom there. And I'm not really sure what the rationale is or why this is the case, but there's these mausoleums that follow down the hill. And uh, they, they look quite decrepit and abandoned. And that's, uh, you know, definitely the, the spookiest part of the cemetery for me is when you kind of go down there. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's kind of under tree cover. So there's, there's really no one around there. So it's... For me, I think uh, the most evocative part of the whole place. Interesting. Well, let's talk about to some stockade-specific areas, since that's where we're actually hanging out. Oh, yeah. And it probably seems appropriate to start with uh, the Van Dyke here. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> As we were talking to Deborah, the manager. So, like I said, I've spent 38 years old. I've been I've spent 33 of those years in Schenectady. Moved to South Carolina, was like 15, came back at 20 or 21. So basically all my drinking years I spent connecting. So I'm very <laughs> versed in the Van Dyke Indeed. and the Mad Jack over that span. <laughs> As you should be. And I've heard a lot of stories about this place since then. Mm. Uh, I've had a friend that worked that was a bartender here years ago. I've had other friends that have worked here kind of on and off briefly. Uh, a lot of the stories resent, came out of the kitchen. But everything, I can never find like a lot of details on what happened here, the most I can find is that somewhere in the 1800s, I talked about this building being old, and it still has the Victorian look all in it. Somewhere in the 1800s, this place was a brothel, and one of the women was murdered on the staircase. That's that's yeah. kind of the extent of the information I can find. Yeah, and that's honestly the extent of the information that there really is. It's kind of one of these apocryphal stories, and it's, uh, you know, it's a story that I've heard. I've heard that the ghost of this woman still occupies the building, uh, and she's particularly jealous. She fancies uh, living men in, in the space, and she'll appear to them. But uh, when living women are around, she gets kind of jealous and petty about it, perhaps even dangerous to be around. That's... Well, Deborah, Deborah mentioned having a bridal party here, and one of the women felt, tripped on the sta- thought she tripped on the stairs. That, she did there say that. You know, yeah. that's, uh, we can, neither, again, neither confirm nor deny that it was a bridal shower after all. Bridal shower. Weird <laughs> we stuff. We don't could know. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I have not attended a bridal shower. So I, can't I have say. also never been to a bridal shower. Um, I'm, I'm sure they're a lot less wild than I imagine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, wa- I don't know. Or want to imagine. But, <laughs> but yeah, I that fascinates me still. And that's a story I even enjoy telling if I run into someone that hasn't been here before or is, hasn't heard it before. I'm like, yeah, yeah. There's, this place was, you know burlesque stuff going on and someone was murdered well, it's the world's oldest profession so yeah, uh, there you go not murder i mean that's that's a close second well, i mean murder's pretty old i would suspect what do you think came first the the prostitutes or the murderers no, that's a that's a weird question i don't <laughs> edit Should, that one out yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I think we leave that in and that's what i named the episode <laughs> the what came first or prostitutes or murder <laughs> it's philosophical i think there's a lot to unpack there I would say it's probably safe to say murder. <laughs> probably. I feel like murder was around longer than prostitutes. I guess so. <laughs> but that was all the information I can van- in the, I could find on the Van Dyke. Certainly don't let that stop you from coming here as Deborah brought us some delightful little fried treats here. And they oh, are yeah. delicious. Uh, I'm, I'm enjoying this right now. So if you hear chewing, uh, I apologize and also don't care because I'm hungry. <laughs> but uh, Front Street Park. Hmm. So what are so, so when you're doing the ghost tours and stories like that obviously it's october i'm gonna put this episode out hopefully next weekend okay oh uh, like i said i feel like i have a limited time when i wanted to do this ghost story window like if i can't do it in october i feel like i shouldn't do it mm-hmm. <laughs> so i'll force myself to get this out by next weekend <laughs> but we talked about uh the, let's start with the massacre because i feel like the following couple stories i just jotted down kind of resemble that so front street park's just down the road from here literally right on the river right well, I, I usually know it as Riverside Park. R- Riverside, uh, Riverside Park. Park. I, I, I saw Riverside Park. I saw Front Street Park. 
yeah, refer well, to a couple different ways. It is a park on front streets. Yes. So, so from what I could come across, said to be haunted by the spirits of former British settlers, the first ones that were here. I think they were killed by the French and Native American soldiers during the Schenectady Massacre. Is that? Well, yeah, yeah. So this is one of those stories that whether you believe the ghost stuff or not, there's there's so much like real horrible stuff that it's still this send is a what shiver that ghost down stuff your spine. Is kind of based in. Absolutely. Honestly, it's sometimes uh, truth is more strange and more shocking than any fiction could ever possibly be. So, so the massacre of 1690, if I were to tell you the whole story, would probably take up the rest of the podcast. But suffice it to say uh, that back then you have these colonial struggles for, for power and for resources. And here the major, pardon me, the major resource was beaver pelts. I can edit that out. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Uh, believe it or not, a whole colonial world driven by the struggle for beaver pelts and their exportation. Uh, so to make a very long story very short, you have two alliances, the, uh, the Mohawk or Haudenosaunee uh, alliance with the British here in where we are down in New York. And then up north in modern day Canada, of course, you had the French colony up there and various Native American peoples uh, kind of in the orbit of that French colony. And, and these two alliances, you know, the, the Canadians and the New Yorkers, so to speak, uh, had been uh, kind of at each other's throats for about a, about a century at this point. Uh, and each had reasons to be kind of aggrieved and, uh, you know, uh, hostile towards their their adversaries. Suffice it to say, this is all kind of coming to a head in 1690, that some French militiamen, some uh, French-Canadian militiamen and some uh, native Canadians were, uh, were on the uh, – seeking revenge for an earlier attack. And they decided to take out their vengeance on Albany. And they're, Just the idea of Canada trying to seek vengeance and – being angry oh, kind, yeah, kind well. of amuses me. Well, they, they've turned a corner, as I understand. <laughs> Not a vengeful people today, but uh, maybe when they, they hear me patronizingly talk about them, maybe they'll maybe they'll uh, return to their vengeful ways. Come down with their hockey sticks. Absolutely. <laughs> their, their hockey sticks and their, their poutine. See, if we had some gravy and some... It's true. Uh, we have some fries. We don't we have, have the gravy, fries, though, but I don't, I don't care for poutine. We're myself. close. Yeah. Uh, Although but, I'm sure that's blasphemy to them. So <laughs> Yeah. I'll, but, maybe I'll edit that out. <laughs> but they walked... They walked in the middle of February from Montreal down down Lake Champlain, down Lake George, down the Hudson River, the upper Hudson River. That's insane because if you make the – having driven to Montreal for a bachelor party, basically a three-hour drive oh, yeah. from this area. So walking that is crazy. Through the snow. Jeez. And the wind and the rain, all that nastiness that February brings. And when they got to, you know – let's say around where Half Moon New York would be today, they had to make a decision because they were exhausted from this long journey. And uh, Albany was a bit too uh, difficult a target to try to take. So instead, they tried to attack the smaller, less defended town of Schenectady. And Schenectady wasn't really well defended at all for a variety of reasons. Uh, But all you need to know is that the stockade wall that was supposed to protect these folks the gates to it were completely un- unlocked, and the attackers were able to infiltrate the city. The, uh, the, the guard that was supposed to be around, 13 guys from Connecticut, it's a long story, uh, they were asleep too, so thanks, Connecticut, you let us down again. <laughs> uh, and the, uh, the invaders, they infiltrate the town, and at the given signal, the attack begins. And again, to, uh, to imagine the, the actual, like, documentable horror of the night is, uh, you know, it, it's something uh, pretty, pretty shocking. Again, people being killed in their own homes uh, before they have a chance to uh, really wake up and dress themselves, arm themselves, see what's going on. The, the people of Schenectady have no chance. Doors are being broken down. People dragged out into the streets. Uh, many of them killed. Some lucky enough to be captured instead. Uh, basically, out of a population of less than 200 people, you have 60 people killed. Another two dozen or so captured. And, and that's then, a, and then they, on top of burning down most of the buildings, right? Oh, yeah. And they were getting a little bit wild. In fact, these attackers had specific orders not to burn down the Dutch church. And they did it anyway. And they killed the, <laughs> um, the priest there, the, the minister there. So they got really carried away. You know, they were, they were mad about something, you know, you can tell. Oh, yeah. Um, so the whole of t- the town is burned to the ground with maybe a handful of buildings surviving. So many people are forced to flee to Albany, and you basically have to hit the reset button on the entire town as it was. That's crazy. Um, and that is the real horror of the night, and we, we, we have some stories that kind of relate to this massacre. Uh, there's this story that comes to us from the late 19th century 
apparently uh, there was an old cobbler here in, in the stockade. Living. I came across this one. You too, came across this one. I'll oh, see no, if yeah. this is the same one. It's a fun one. It's, it's it's a this one has a happy ending. Okay. Folks. Yep. This is the same one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So he's out uh, sitting on his stoop as you do back in the day. There was no Netflix back then, so what else are you gonna do? Um, Imagine that. Yeah, and you know the the world was changing around this this old cobbler. You know the 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 city of Schenectady was industrializing. You know people didn't really need their shoes made by hand anymore. Things were were changing, and so the the man was in dire economic straits. I can tell you that much. And so he's on one dusky evening, uh, he's on his stoop when this mysterious cloaked figure approaches him. Uh, from out of nowhere, seemingly just appears from the corner of his, his perception uh, and, and walks up to him, approaches him, and uh, beckons for the cobbler to follow. Uh, the cobbler is terrified and chooses not to follow this strange figure, whomever it is, and the figure eventually leads off to, to one direction and disappears around a corner. It's kind of hard to blame him. Oh, yeah. I don't know what I would do in that situation. Stranger danger, folks. Don't don't follow. Again, (laughs) you're going to be tempted by this story to maybe follow cloaked strangers. PSA, don't do it, guys. It's weird and not safe. Uh, But the cobbler relates the experience to his wife. Uh, And the wife perhaps is a little bit more more, uh, pizzazz than he does because she uh, encourages him that the next time the stranger, this cloaked figure, appears, that they should follow him and see, you know, what's the worst that could happen. Um, so probably only death, but you know, yeah, right. You know, that's the worst that can happen. So uh, a little bit later, again, cobbler sitting out on his stoop and the cloaked figure appears and well, this time he calls his wife and together they go and they follow this figure as the figure leads them around the corner into a little alleyway, points down to the ground at its feet and without a word disappears. Uh, of course, they're very startled to see this this apparition disappeared before their eyes. But the cobbler and his wife, they go and grab a shovel, and they dig at the spot indicated, and they find, supposedly, a pot or a cache of gold coins, of gilders, uh, solid gold, uh, which supposedly, apparently, date to the massacre. This was, again, as the story goes, a, a victim of that massacre, and all that they could do... Just, on- to, just to verify, the ghost didn't look like a leprechaun, right? There was no mention? No, okay. no, I don't okay. think... Uh, <laughs> I, it wasn't wearing green. You see, if yeah. it was wearing a green cloak, then okay. then scientifically it would be a leprechaun, but not the case. So they, they dig this up, and apparently uh, this was the spirit of someone who, on the night of the massacre, all they had time to do was bury their hoard, their accumulated worldly possessions, this pot, this cache of gold that they had of Dutch guilders before they too were struck down by the invading dastardly Canadians. And uh, dastardly Canadians, folks, you heard it from me, folks, first. Uh, <laughs> so ridiculous. Yeah, it, it kind of is. But uh, so apparently the, the spirit deemed this this unfortunate cobbler a worthy successor, a worthy inheritor of this cache of wealth. And supposedly they lived happily ever after. But uh, well, kudos to him. Yeah, right. See, so just again, folks, so don't the lesson is if you see an apparition, follow it. <laughs> yes, that nothing bad can no. happen to you. Only good things. You're going to get some gold. You. you will. It's <laughs> it's certain. Read more about this in my 10-step book, How to Make Rich, Get Rich Without Even Trying. Uh, by Find a ghost and follow it, step one through nine. <laughs> yes. Dig. That's that's step number eight. got to dig. Well, I was a lot of say, people forget to dig. I, I was going to say that was step 10. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I feel like step 10 would be buying um, stock, but I, I don't know. You gotta, you gotta, yeah, I mean, if you, you want to make it 11, you can make that 11 steps. <laughs> I might invest. have to revise this book. I might have to <laughs> invest your gold, <laughs> yes. your newfound wealth that you have just dug up from the ground. In Bitcoin. No, don't do that. <laughs> Another one of the stories I came across. Again, I don't know what you guys talk about on your haunted ghost tours. I know they're very popular and certainly well worth it. Uh, Four South Church Street, which is, I believe, right down the road that way. Mm-hmm. So I came across this story that talked about there's the sound of like tw- somebody pacing in a room, 22 paces. Oh, yeah. Now, this story brings us to the late 1870s, that decade. And a man named Henry Horstmeyer had recently purchased that property. And so he's you know very excited to have purchased this property. It's a beautiful home. It really is. If you come and see it today, it looks exactly as it would have done or pretty similar to how it would have done in the late 19th century. So it has that Victorian appearance. It's a beautiful beautiful home i think it's apartments now i don't actually know that for yeah, sure. I'm not sure from what i henry Hoistmeyer, from what i could find he owned the house back in 1870 so yeah 
So when he purchases the home, uh, as he moves in, he's uh, alarmed one night to hear the sound of footsteps in his living room. There he is in his bedroom, uh, in his bed. And in the middle of the night, he hears these footsteps pacing back and forth. And of course, the first thing he concludes is that someone has broken into his home. And a little bit concerned and intimidated by that, he stays in his room and waits for the sound of the footsteps to dissipate. And it takes an eternity for them to go away. You know, he doesn't hear any other sounds. He doesn't hear the sound of moving furniture or opening drawers as if this were a thief. You'd think they would be taking something. You'd think he'd be able to hear that. But what he does notice with a rhythmic precision, these footsteps walk one way. 18 paces. Sorry, 22 paces. 22. 22 Get it right, paces. I'm, I'm sorry. The <laughs> numbers were never my strong suit. That's why I'm a history major. Uh, but 22 sp- uh, paces in one direction. Pause. Turn around. 22 paces in the opposite direction. Uh, for an interminable period of time, Henry is there kind of cowering in his bed sheets there, waiting for this intruder to go away. Now, eventually, as the light of dawn breaks, the footsteps subside, and Henry, cautiously, carefully, peeks into his living room to find out, you know, what did he lose? What had this intruder taken? And he sees nothing disturbed at all. The whole of the, the house, not just the living room, but every other room, is completely undisturbed. There's no sign of a forced entry. There's no sign of a hasty exit. So he's very concerned. He's very confused. Uh, perhaps he was just imagining things. But lo and behold, a few nights later, the same phenomenon happens again. So, one of these mornings, uh, Henry actually inquires about it. He tries to find a carpenter to look beneath the floorboards. Maybe there's some rot. Maybe there's some structural problem with his brand new house. And that's what he's hearing. Uh, But there is no earthly explanation to be found. The carpenters return nothing. And so he's, he's very upset about this. He's very concerned. And he's asking around... And and older residents, people in the the neighborhood, uh, they tell him a story. They tell him a story about a a young boy who, during the the early stages of the Civil War, wanted to sign up to join the Union Army. Um, And, of course, the Civil War is a very real event and a very real horrific event as well. And there's plenty of horror stories that we could tell you related to that. Plenty of Schenectady men who go off to fight and eventually, unfortunately, uh, perish in battle in this very climactic phase of American history. Uh, Now, this boy, being uh, too young for military service and kind of being a bit shorter than most, a bit smaller in stature, you might say, uh, despite his enthusiasm and his desire to fight for the Union cause, uh, even the desperate Union recruiters are unwilling to take him until the casualties mount and the Union army is depleted and never need of more recruits. And eventually, eventually, the, the recruiters become desperate enough that even this, this small young boy, again, too, too young to really uh, join the military, is accepted into the ranks of the Union army. And now he's gotten what he wants, uh, but the anxiety starts to set in because he knows that he's going into a very, very deadly conflict. So the night before he's about to ship out and head on his way to, to be deployed, uh, he's nervous. He's pacing. He paces up and down the length of that living room. And again, being shorter than most, uh, an average male, Henry himself, as he paces through that living room, it only takes him 18 steps to get from one side to the other. But because this this boy was smaller than most, it would take him 22 one way and then 22 the other. And again, the neighbors recount, uh, they tell Henry that they had heard this, this young boy pacing back and forth on that fateful night before he went away. And the boy, apparently, the the next day after his long, anxious pacing in his home, uh, was shipped out, made his way to Gettysburg, where he was never seen or heard from again, presumed killed in the crossfire. Um, and perhaps it is that Henry Horsemeyer was encountering that spirit forever to doom to pace, the, pace uh, that room. the last night of peace that he had before his life became shattered by this deadly, deadly conflict. That's insane. It sure is. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, like these stories are born from like such logical, uh, you know, understandable situations. Oh yeah, yeah. And there's uh, uh, even more to unpack. I understand that after this story kind of became popular here in Schenectady, 
Apparently, there was like a little Scooby-Doo mystery associated with this house as well. Was it really? Yeah. Again, I can't really cite my sources here, but I understand that there was a kind of a prankster who had heard of this story and then like dressed in a white sheet and would chase people around the area in the late 19th century, maybe the early 20th. I can't I can't quite recall, but he would just chase people around. Uh, it was just some random dude. Uh, yeah, yeah, if you did that now, you'd just get punched. you just get shot is what you would. You'd, <laughs> yeah. Can't even. Yeah. yeah, so uh, nevertheless, uh, there's, there's more to the story perhaps even <laughs> than I can recall as I eat my potato fries. Uh, yes, uh, we got some fries, some potato fries, some onion rings. Thank you, Deborah, again. for mm. That was delicious as we snack on these. I'm going to take the last onion. Oh, you are welcome. I, I, I would feel like a jerk if I took the last one. <laughs> so I have one other story. I don't know what stories... Was there one in particular you wanted to bring up before I even mentioned this one? I'm curious I, to see if it's the same. I do have one. Okay. Um, this is the story of one Captain Banker, and it comes from the Revolutionary War. Okay, I don't know this one. You so don't I'm know intrigued. this one? All right. Well, I, this, I did not find this. Yeah, this one is kind of a, an advanced level ghost story. This one, actually, I again, one of our great volunteers, one of our great members, uh, shared this with me. And I don't know that it's actually like in our... In our walking tours, for instance, our candlelight tours, I don't think you'll hear this story. So this is a podcast Ooh, exclusive, that's, folks. That's there right. There you go. Um, All about the exclusives. Yes. This is the story of one Captain Banker and the apparition of Lieutenant Peters. Um, so this takes us to the Revolutionary War. And again, this is another situation where the real-life events are horrific enough uh, that you don't even necessarily need the ghosts to make it spooky. But... The revolution here in Schenectady was, uh, in in many cases, as much of a civil war, a civil conflict, as it is an anti-colonial war, because you have a lot of people around here and and west of here as well, who just as much as people wanted to be free of the British Empire, there were plenty of people who wanted to stay part of the British Empire, loyalists or Tories, as we call them. And although Schenectady generally favored the patriot cause and the kind of the powers that be adhered to the patriot cause there were plenty of loyalists around here and west of here you had loyalist militias operating out of well uh, what is kind of today uh, uh canada or uh um montgomery county they would do a lot of raids on the western side of this colonial uh frontier and so there was almost a period of, of constant conflict, even after the Battle of Saratoga in 1777. You think that would be the, the final end to the British threat here in New York, but that's far from the case. Hmm. After that battle, uh, militias operating out of Canada would just uh, wage uh, smaller rates and, and, uh, and attacks on patriot-aligned settlements. It was a, a time to settle old scores, and sometimes the reason that you were a patriot or a loyalist was not because you cared what Thomas Jefferson had to say or the King of England had to say, but because you really hated that guy down the street, and he stole your cows <laughs> you know, two years ago, and now's your time to get revenge. Sometimes, folks, the, the, the things that inspire great changes are just petty and, and simplistic human nature. Well, yeah, you're not wrong. But I digress. <clears throat> so Schenectady is here in this frontier, and as the uh, the outlying settlements, the western settlements, are, are pushed further back and back, and refugees are pouring from points westward into Schenectady. Schenectady and Albany kind of remain the, the, the bastion of patriot uh, strength uh, in the upper part of New York. The Schenectady militia always had to be prepared to be deployed uh, to respond to any of these raids should they take place. And that's where Captain Banker comes in. He was the captain of the local militia here. Uh, he was a well-respected officer. He had seen conflict before. He was a pretty unshakable guy, so he, he kind of knew what was up. And one day, this is in 1780, he hears reports from a, uh, a an Oneida scout. Again, the Oneida had been refugees of the conflict as well, chased from their own home villages uh, by these loyalist and even uh, Iroquoian militias that had chased them from their own uh, village. The United Scouts report that there is a, a raiding party heading towards Ball's town, or today we call it Boston, right? Like Boston <laughs> Spa, like that, that kind of nick of the woods. Yep. Uh, but Ball's town was under threat. And so Stop Captain... Calling that Ball's town. Man. Ball's town, yeah. It's, it's kind of an, an awkward name, guys. <laughs> Ball's town. I don't know. It was named after, well, some guy named Ball purchased the, the patent to the town and decided to name it after himself. It, I guess it cost him an extra barrel of rum to 
get the naming rights to the town. I don't Is that know. all? That's that's an apocryphal little factoid there, folks. Don't all take right. that for granted. But I did read it, so it must be true. Absolutely. So he, uh, Captain Banker, I should say, summons his most trusted lieutenant, Lieutenant Peters was his name, uh, to take about 40 men, uh, 40 Schenectadians and 40 uh, Oneida uh, auxiliaries, and go north to Boston to investigate and perhaps hopefully protect the town. So they go off, and uh, Lieutenant Peters has orders, of course, to send runners back at regular intervals to report on the, the progress of this, this mission. And the day goes on, and the day goes on. It goes, you know, from morning to uh, to noon to getting into the evening, and, and no reports have come back. Um, so Captain Banker is getting a little bit concerned. He's, you know, not hearing from his men. And as you know, evening turns into the dead of night. He's he, he can't find any sleep. He's sitting there in the parlor of his home, which is would be on modern day State Street. So it would be on kind of the southern side of town. Mm-hmm. A nice little stately home that he has for himself. Uh, he's still waiting for Lieutenant Peters to report back in, and he's trying to stay awake because he needs to respond as soon as possible. Uh, but, of course, eventually sleep catches up to him in the wee hours of the morning. He's nodding off and dozing off and snapping back awake as soon as he can. And, and w- during one of these little drowsy periods, he wakes to find Lieutenant Peters there in his, in his, uh, in his parlor. He's sitting there by the fireplace, illuminated by the kind of the, the dying embers of this, this fire. And, of course, Captain Banker is relieved to see his lieutenant. Lieutenant Peters, what, what have you seen? What, what happened out there? But the figure doesn't respond, doesn't even turn their head. Uh, so Captain Banker asks, asks a little bit more sternly this time, uh, Mr. Peters, what is your report? And again, the figure says and does nothing, just stares into the dying embers of the fire. And then the third time that uh, Captain Banker addresses his subordinate, uh, well, in this case, the figure just vanishes right before his very eyes. And Captain Banker, again, hardened uh, military veteran that he is, is incredibly unnerved by this situation. He calls his sister, who was in the, the room upstairs, to come and well, keep him company the rest of the night because he doesn't want to sit here by himself anymore. And it takes a very long and agonizing night, I'm sure, till the dawn breaks and a uh, Oneida runner comes back to inform the captain that this party, led by Lieutenant Peters, had been ambushed and a number of people had been killed, including Lieutenant, Lieutenant Peters. Peters. So who or what Captain Banker saw in his, uh, in his home that night by the fire... Was it the uh, guilty conscience of a of a of a captain who worried about the fate of his men? Was it the spirit of Lieutenant Peters trying to come back and make one final report before his duty was done wow. for good? We may never know. That's a good one. Yeah, it is a good one. <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah, I like that one. We should add it to the candlelight tour. <laughs> but then, then it wouldn't be exclusive for this podcast. It, there you go. That's the. I will. That's. A, I'm going to advertise the podcast exclusive ghost story. <laughs> That you won't get from the Candlelight Tour. So go to yep. the Candlelight Tour, then listen to this. Yep. This one's free, folks. Yeah, absolutely. Unless you want to give me something, I'm happy with that. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm easily bought. The bar's not high. Mm. <laughs> I can be purchased with French fries and onion rings. Apparently. <laughs> just one more story to touch on, and then we can wrap things up sure. that I just came across. So I don't know. Is there? Did you have something about a disappearing Indian on one of the shores here? Is oh, that yeah, a story I've, you're familiar with? I've heard that one. That's a, that's an old one, that's for sure. So in the 1700s, Riverside Park, this is, like I said, I mentioned, was it Front Street Park before and Riverside Park? Mm-hmm. This is where this was taking place, right? Mm. <laughs> I'm going to keep talking so we can't hear your chewing as you finish your onion ring. I'm just going to keep going here. Okay, so, I think yeah. we're getting there. All right. So perhaps not even the 1700s, perhaps even the 1600s. Oh, okay. Again, this is a, one of those apocryphal stories, so it could be the 1700s. But uh, what we do want to understand about this period, whether it's the 17th or the 18th century, is that Schenectady is a port town, and Front Street is the street that fronts up against the river. And that's where people's attention and uh, energy was all focused towards the river and the trade facilitated by that river between this little trading outpost of Schenectady and the... Haudenosaunee or Iroquois people to the west. Uh, So you have that large confederacy out there. The Mohawks being the easternmost nation of that confederacy would be in constant contact uh, with Schenectady. 
trading furs and while the Europeans would supply manufactured goods and, and cooking pots and textiles and all kinds of stuff. It was a uh, an arrangement that for the first hundred years or so, I would say, was genuinely mutually supportive and beneficial, mm-hmm. increasingly vital to both communities. So it was not uncommon to find Mohawk traders taking their, their canoes into town uh, to stop and trade for whatever they needed. And they would provide various things from, from, their, uh, from the woodlands of their homes. The, particularly beaver pelts were the most prized. But, you know, anything else would do. Meats and other yep. furs. Uh, the, the kind of the natural bounty that these expert Mohawk hunters were perfectly prepared uh, to, to provide. So um, apparently there was... One Mohawk who was kind of uh, separated from the others as, a, as being a little bit of a, a strange individual, um, perhaps a little bit more aloof and uh, kind of uh, off in his own head than than others. But he was a skilled hunter and respected by all the folks in Schenectady. Always look forward to seeing him pull into town because they knew that he would have the finest furs and the, the choicest the choicest selection of, of goods to trade for. But like I said, this guy was a little bit a little bit of a strange case. Now, one day, apparently, he comes into town and people spot him from a couple hundred yards away as he's coming on in. And they, they gather the whole town because people are going to be bidding on what he has to, to share or to, to sell, really. He's, he's not necessarily going to share. Um, and as he pulls into the docks of Schenectady, which would have been right there on the riverside, you got Riverside Park, as it bends around into the Binnacle, uh, the small little tributary, which today you probably wouldn't notice, but there was dock space there as mm-hmm. well. A quiet place to uh, beach your canoe, beach your bateau, whatever you want to call it, and maybe do some business. Uh, so as this Mohawk man pulls into the port of Schenectady, people are clamoring amongst themselves to try to get the first dibs on what he has to offer because they see that his canoe is virtually overflowing with a bounty, a natural bounty of furs and meats and all kinds of incredible things to trade for. Uh, but this Mohawk man, strange for, for, for most times, he's not addressing any of these people. Uh, he just silently gets out of his boat. He... Uh, unloads all of the things uh, that he has in it, all this uh, virtual fortune in goods. And without another word, he turns to the people of Schenectady who had kind of clamored around him. uh, And he turns to them and he says that this is my gift to you. And the great spirit has called me to another purpose. And he gets back into his canoe. He pushes away from the land. And at this point, the people of Schenectady are concerned about their Mohawk friend here. uh, Because... He's acting very unwell, perhaps bewitched, you might say. So a, a set of Schenectady men start heading out after him in their own boat. And despite the, this Mohawk man sitting perfectly still, upright in his canoe there, not touching an oar, not really doing anything, propelled by some unseen force, he moves up against the current to the west at an alarming speed. And, and the Schenectady men, the pursuers, can, can barely catch up with him. They, they can't even keep up with him uh, because he's just moving at such an unearthly speed. And at a certain point where the Mohawk River bends around to the north, uh, well, he goes around, the, the Mohawk man goes around the bend first. And by the time that the Schenectady men turn around that corner, the whole stretch of river for a mile ahead is, is empty. There's no sign of their Mohawk friend. There's no sign of anybody. It's as if he's disappeared into thin air so the people of schenectady are concerned they keep an eye out for this guy in the next couple of years and apparently some people see him on the banks of the river every now and then they might see a figure dressed in the customary mohawk uh, clothing but if they ever call out to this man well he might just turn his head and as he sees the his his uh, hailers he just disappears without a word Supposedly, this is the apparition of that same Mohawk man. But Ooh. I don't know, folks. Your, your mileage may vary on, on that story. That sounds like <laughs> sounds like an old wives' tale to me. I don't know. That, I mean, that was essentially the same story I came across. Which I creepiest part to me is him going upriver. I imagine him just sitting in his boat with his arms crossed and like a headdress on. Just well, it's a up, striking image. It is. It's, it's like the image I picture and just the boat going. Yeah. And then, of course, you come around the corner and it's disappeared. Crazy. Pretty wild. But, uh, but yeah, again, I always wonder about that story because it'd make that story so much easier if the, the man had a name, the Mohawk man, that is. But, uh, unfortunately, that name does not survive in our records. No. Like, yeah, I can imagine that. No. 
But I think that's uh, I think that's a good spot to wrap up. We're just over an hour, which is where I like to generally cut these things off to make editing easier. I'm not going to lie. That's why I do stick to the hour <laughs> format, people. <laughs> it's, it's a smart move. It is. I would do. So that's a wrap on another successful edition of Ghost Stories from a Bar. Big thank you, Mike Diana, for being on the show. I appreciate you taking the time to hang out, have some drinks, some snacks, and talk all about ghosts, local ghosts and hauntings. Uh, this has been real fun, man. Yeah, well, Chris, thanks so much for having me, um, and uh, thanks for inviting me out here. And and folks out there, if you want to learn more about these stories or uh, or more about Schenectady history in general, no ghosts need to be involved. You can come on down to our historical society. Our headquarters is at 32 Washington Avenue. You can come talk to me or come talk to my colleagues uh, and, and learn a little bit about history for yourself because that's that's really what it all comes down to is becoming an, an active and a responsible consumer of history and not just someone who watches the History Channel. That's That doesn't count, <laughs> folks. That's, that's not real. It's not. Sadly, it's not. No. But be sure to like and follow all of the Schenectady County Historical Society's social media pages uh, to keep up with everything they have going on. Don't forget to check out their website, SchenectadyHistorical.com, for even more info on all the events. And uh, anything else you want to throw in there before we wrap up? Well, no, folks, but we look forward to seeing you all. Okay. And, of course, thank you, Mad Jack Bruin at the Van Dyke here. And uh, Manager Deborah, you guys couldn't have been more nice. Thanks for the food the snacks you sent out uh, again if you're in schenectady be sure to stop by here just check out the environment it's definitely different than any other place you'll walk into with beer in schenectady mm. and the beer here of and food of course is fantastic so be sure to check out the van dyke mad jack brewing next time you're in town be sure to mention you listen to the podcast it won't get you anything but it'll make me feel good <laughs> <laughs> I want to put that in there. I feel like that's an important note. And also, don't forget the discount code stories for UptownBeverage.com for 3% off your online orders. A huge thank you to everyone out there for checking out the show. You can, of course, follow Stories from Bar on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at StoriesFAB to keep up with everything going on coming up on the show. Also, be sure to check out Popcorn and Pints on Facebook and Twitter. We're streaming new live episodes of that every Saturday night where myself and some friends basically just drink and talk about movies. That's a fun time if you got nothing going on. You'll find stories from a bar on all major podcast platforms and be sure to like and subscribe and even more importantly, leave a fantastic review and share the hell out of it. So until next time, people, cheers. cheers.